Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. House Republicans set to kick off impeachment proceedings against Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas. What does the timeline look like? Claudine Gay is out as president of Harvard, but will remain on the university's faculty. Her annual salary is under scrutiny. House Speaker Mike Johnson kicks off the new year by leading more than 60 House Republicans to the U.S.-Mexico border. That's amid the record-breaking migrant surge in recent months. We have the latest. A D.C. judge dismisses part of a lawsuit against former President Trump related to the death of Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick. But other accusations in the case will continue. Taiwan, India, Mexico, and the European Union. They will all hold general elections this year. What are the implications of their results? A plane crashes in Japan, catches fire, and fills with smoke. Hear what happened next as those aboard tried to make it to safety. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. House Republicans are forging ahead with steps to impeach Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas. That's a multiple media report today. Mayorkas reacted to the news in an interview with CNN. He was asked whether an impeachment effort would complicate any efforts to pass a border deal. Oh, I certainly hope not. And I'm incredibly proud of coming to work every day and leaving the office uh, as late as it might be. When they're at the border, they're going to see the magnitude of the problem and why we have said now for about three decades that our uh, broken immigration system is in desperate need of legislative reform. So we are focused on solutions, and we hope that they will return to Washington and focus on the solutions as well. A spokesperson for the Homeland Security Committee says the impeachment hearings will begin next week. The House voted in November to bump the issue to the committee. Since retaking the House majority, Republicans have long sought to impeach Mayorkas over his handling of immigration at the southern border. Mayorkas sought to downplay concerns about impeachment. Instead, he called for more funding for his department. Embattled Harvard President Claudine Gay announced yesterday she's stepping down. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on her resignation just six months into her tenure. The move comes after a tumultuous month following Gay's testimony to Congress about campus anti-Semitism. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. Gay soon came under pressure to resign from Harvard's Jewish community and others. The university was also hit financially, as some wealthy donors suspended or withdrew funding. Harvard alum and billionaire investor Bill Ackman wrote on X that he was personally aware of more than a billion dollars of terminated donations from a small group of Harvard's most generous Jewish and non-Jewish alumni. More than 70 lawmakers signed a letter demanding that Harvard remove gay. The letter also called for the firing of the University of Pennsylvania's Liz McGill and MIT's President Sally Kornbluth, both who testified at the same congressional hearing and also declined to give a definitive yes or no answer to whether calling for the genocide of Jews would violate their school's codes of conduct regarding bullying and harassment. 
UPenn President Liz McGill resigned days after the hearing. Following Gay's resignation, Representative Elise Stefanik wrote on X, Two Down. Last month, Harvard's Alumni Association Executive Committee said it unanimously and unequivocally supported the president. But on another front, a House committee widened its probe into anti-Semitism at Harvard to include an investigation into plagiarism in Gay's academic writing. Gay faced widespread criticism after the plagiarism accusations emerged, including multiple instances of missing quotation marks and citations. Jacob Miller, Harvard student and Hillel president, said Gay stepping down is just the first step. For me, the most important issue has been the anti-Semitism we've been seeing on a nearly daily basis across the school. In her resignation letter, Gay said, quote, It has been distressing to have doubt cast on my commitments to confronting hate and to upholding scholarly rigor, and frightening to be subjected to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus. Harvard Corporation defended Gay and said they accepted her resignation with sorrow. The corporation, which is the university's governing body, said she showed remarkable resilience in the face of deeply personal and sustained attacks. Although Gay has stepped down as president, she will remain at Harvard, returning to a position on the school's faculty. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Former Harvard President Claudine Gay will likely remain a member of the university's faculty. In her letter of resignation, Gay said she would continue to teach. The Harvard Crimson reports that Gay made almost $900,000 as Dean of Faculty Arts and Sciences in 2021. The shortest serving president of the prestigious university has faced dozens of allegations of plagiarism. Harvard's board for weeks had defended Gay against those accusations. The board has also supported Gay after her comments about anti-Semitism in front of Congress last month. It's unclear what Gay's position will be following her resignation. Provost Alan Garner says he will serve as Harvard's interim president. Here to discuss this Harvard University shakeup is senior counsel at the Lawfare Project, Gerard Felitti. Gerard, what difference will the resignation of Claudine Gay make to anti-Semitism at Harvard University? Well, the resignation is a step in the right direction. It shows that this is now an opportunity for a new leader to properly address the anti-Semitism we've seen, including the calls for the genocide of the Jewish people. However, hatred against Jews remains systemic. Harvard Corporation did not fire her. She was allowed to resign. And even when she resigned, she tried to inject racism into it instead of addressing the very racism that she allowed to continue on campus while she was president. So there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah, now Gay is set to remain employed at Harvard with a salary uh, comparable to her almost $900,000. What does that say about her future role and influence at the university? It suggests that she will have continued influence in the years to come. It is a little outrageous that she continues to be paid at that high level. In the corporate world, we would call that a golden parachute. She is essentially being uh, paid off to, to resign uh, and not facing any consequences, any significant consequences for her failure to uphold the civil rights of Jewish students. So the salary is an issue that she is being paid so much. The question remains why, and these are questions that the Harvard Corporation needs to answer. Yeah, and about the Harvard Cor Corporation, Harvard's board has uh, stuck with Gay this whole time. Um, now there's talk of shaking up the board. Uh, what impact could that have on anti-Semitism at Harvard like we're talking about here? 
Well, that may very well have a positive impact. Harvard has had issues with racism and anti-Semitism for many, many years, for decades, in fact. It's only recently started to come to, to terms and atone for its anti-black racism. I think that changing the corporate makeup, changing the board, may jumpstart a process of healing for Jewish students as well and proper enforcement of their civil rights so they're no longer targeted on campus. You mentioned Harvard has had problems with anti-Semitism in the past. Can you just touch on that briefly, what has happened in the past? Now, this, what's happening now after October 7 is nothing new. This is something that's been going on for decades. It's emblematic of systemic racism, including at Harvard. We've also seen a decline in Jewish admissions and Jewish students studying at Harvard, in part because of the atmosphere that they're encountering. So what we've seen after October 7 is unfortunately not new. It's only become new in the public attention because it's been exposed, especially by congressional hearings. So this, this is the same problem we've seen for many years, and Harvard is only now starting to feel pressure to aggressive. Now, this this could be seen as only a flash in the pan, or, or do you think it could be seen as something, I don't know, the start of uh, more of these type of resignations? Well, we, we hope, a lot of people hope, that it is the start of something new. We are seeing increasing pressure by the American people, by the community, not just the Jewish community, for these schools to properly address Jew hatred, anti-Semitism, and other forms of hate that these, the two presidents so far have resigned from UPenn and, and Harvard is a good indication that the American public will no longer tolerate leaders of schools who inject racism, nothing to prevent or protect what's going on to, to Jewish students. And yeah, over a dozen schools um, have come under investigation by the U.S. Department of Education for discrimination since the October 7th Hamas attack. What could be the results of all these investigations? For one thing, the Department of Education can enter into agreements with these schools on how to address anti-Semitism on campus. The risk for these schools being that if they don't properly enforce the rights of Jewish students, the civil rights under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, they can lose funding. They can lose government funding to their programs, which amounts to billions of dollars. So the best case outcome is that these schools institute systemic change to address anti-Semitism and prevent things happening to Jewish students, such as we've seen in the last three months. And Gerard, just in closing, you can change all the leadership you want, of course, but you can't change people's hearts. What has to happen to stem anti-Semitism on college campuses for good? Well, two things have to happen. One is we need to impose consequences in Jew hatred. We need to make anti-Semites feel as uncomfortable as every other type of racist or bigot. Over the past few decades, we've seen such tremendous advancements in social justice for other minority groups where you can no longer use defamatory or derogatory language. LGBTQ equality is something that's enshrined in society. We need the same advances for the Jewish people. Recognition that Jews are a minority people entitled to civil protections and equal rights under the law. When we start doing that, by imposing consequences on Jew hatred and by educating about anti-Semitism, that's when we begin to see a shift in society to make anti-Semitism as unacceptable as racism, anti-Asian hate, and other forms of bigotry. Okay, Gerard Felitti, Senior Counsel at the Lawfare Project. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Up next, Chicago is the latest city to implement policies to stop illegal immigrants from arriving by bus. Meanwhile, Texas Governor Greg Abbott shares his strategy going forward regarding the buses. And a congressman's decision to retire early puts the thin Republican majority in the House in a more fragile position. Find out what that means after the break.
Welcome back. With border and spending talks resuming in Congress, President Biden told reporters last night that the federal government needs more money to address the southern border crisis. Biden's comments came ahead of House Speaker Mike Johnson's visit to the U.S.-Mexico border today. Speaker Johnson is joined by 60 other Republican lawmakers on a trip to Eagle Pass, Texas. They'll meet with state and local officials, officials to discuss their experience on the ground and what they see as failures of the Biden administration to enforce border policy. Speaker Johnson says America is experiencing the worst border crisis in the nation's history and stated it's impacting every community in the country. He's accusing President Biden and Senate Democrats of being asleep at the wheel. Johnson says House Republicans are demanding immediate solutions to the problem. Fox News reported that over 300,000 people attempted to cross the southern border in December alone. The House Speaker will hold a news conference on border security at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Illegal immigration continues impacting communities across the U.S. Texas Governor Greg Abbott shares how many immigrants he bust to other cities so far and his strategy going forward. Abbott posted on X Tuesday that Texas has transported over 95,000 migrants to sanctuary cities. Most of those were people reportedly sent to New York City, Chicago, and Washington, D.C., come in second and third place. Abbott continued saying sanctuary cities like New York and Chicago have seen only a fraction of what overwhelmed Texas border towns face daily. We will continue our transportation mission, he says, until Biden reverses course on his open border policies. Meanwhile, suburbs in Chicago are implementing policies to restrict buses dropping off immigrants unannounced. Bus operators will have to get their arrival approved or face thousands of dollars of fines. This comes just days after New York City implemented a similar law. However, bus operators quickly found a loophole by dropping immigrants off in New Jersey, which is a 15-minute train ride from the Big Apple. Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson spoke on the issue on Tuesday, calling for federal intervention. We have this international crisis that really requires federal intervention from Congress to act. And right now you have local economies like the city of Chicago or Trenton or New York or Denver or anywhere else where we're having to subsidize this international crisis. But unfortunately, you also have a governor who is committed um, to chaos and disorder. Uh, governor Abbott has sent well over 600 buses alone to the city of Chicago. And New York City Mayor Eric Adams is warning that illegal immigrants will soon have to sleep on the street. That's as the city struggles to find space for housing. Adams says the city is being inundated with immigrants. He said 2,500 migrants arrive every week, although that number can top 4,000 in some weeks. The mayor insists that New York has no room left to house people. A federal judge has dismissed part of a lawsuit against former President Trump and two January 6 defendants. It's related to the death of Capitol Police officer Brian Sicknick. Sicknick had two strokes and died a day after the Capitol was breached. Sicknick's ex-girlfriend, Sandra Garza, brought the lawsuit against Trump. The judge in the case found Garza lacked statutory standing to bring a wrongful death claim because she was not his spouse or domestic partner under D.C. law. Three of the five civil counts were dismissed. Garza can now proceed with a claim against Trump under D.C.'s Survival Act. It allows a representative of Sicknick's estate to take legal action on his behalf after his death. 
Another part of the lawsuit that's allowed to continue is an accusation that Trump and the two defendants engaged in a conspiracy to violate civil rights. The judge noted that the D.C. Court of Appeals has already ruled that Trump doesn't have presidential immunity from January 6 lawsuits. More updates on the prosecution of January 6 protesters. The Justice Department is seeking a six-month sentence for Ray Epps. Epps will appear for sentencing next Tuesday, January 9th. He faces one misdemeanor charge of disorderly or disruptive conduct for his actions at the Capitol. He pleaded guilty in September of last year. Prosecutors said Epps should spend time in jail because he tried to inspire and gather a crowd to storm the Capitol. They also said that Epps, quote, has been the target of a false and widespread conspiracy theory that he was an undercover government agent on January 6th. The lightning speed of Epps' prosecution stands in contrast to many January 6th defendants who have spent nearly three years in jail awaiting trial. The thin Republican majority in the House of Representatives is set to shrink even more later this month. This as Representative Bill Johnson from Ohio is resigning earlier than planned. His official resignation date is now January 21st. This means there will be fewer Republicans in the House, making it more challenging for them to pass laws without Democratic support. Currently, there are 219 Republicans, 213 Democrats, and three empty seats in the House. With Johnson leaving, the Republicans will only be able to lose two votes if everyone shows up for a vote. This could make it harder for them to pass important laws and fund the government. The situation might become even more complicated as there are upcoming elections and another expected resignation. Those developments could further impact the number of House Republicans. The race for the Senate seat vacated by retiring Senator Mitt, Mitt Romney just got more crowded. Congressman John Curtis said Tuesday he's throwing his hat into the ring. Republican John Curtis has been representing part of Utah since 2017. He originally said last fall he wasn't going to run, but says he changed his mind after people asked him to reconsider. Brent Hatch, a trial lawyer and son of the late Senator Orrin Hatch, is also running. Others running for Romney's Senate seat are former Utah House Speaker Brad Wilson and several GOP mayors. A new indictment against Senator Bob Menendez accuses him of accepting gifts from Qatar as part of a years-long corruption scheme. The superseding indictment released yesterday claimed the New Jersey Democrat used influence to help secure an investment for a co-conspirator from a fund tied to Qatar's government. Prosecutors allege he exchanged favors for money, gold and race car tickets, among other things. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the new accus accusations. Federal prosecutors allege in Tuesday's superseding indictment that Menendez's bribery and extortion scheme ran into 2023, a year longer than they initially believed. The indictment accuses Menendez of a years-long corruption scheme, adding Qatar to a list beside Egypt as foreign countries he allegedly helped while in office. Prosecutors claim Menendez accepted payments from a co-conspirator, New Jersey real estate developer Fred Davies, to help obtain millions of dollars from an investment fund tied to Qatar. The rewritten indictment alleges the senator introduced a member of the Qatari royal family and a member of the fund to Davies. Prosecutors say Menendez did not note gifts from Qatar and Davies on his financial disclosure forms, including a gold bar and tickets to the Formula One Grand Prix. Davies is one of three businessmen charged, along with the senator and his wife. All of them have pleaded not guilty. In addition to bribery charges, Menendez is accused of acting as a foreign agent for the government of Egypt. That's for allegedly helping the country to benefit another co-defendant's export business. 
Menendez's attorney stated Tuesday that the government doesn't have the proof to back up any of the accusations, calling them baseless, bizarre, and based on routine lawful contacts between constituents or foreign officials. Menendez was chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but gave the position up after being arrested last year. He has resisted calls to step down from the Senate. GOP presidential candidate Chris Christie says he's disappointed with Democrats for not taking solid action. At least the Republicans removed George Santos. I, where are the Democrats in the United States Senate with removing this guy? This is now a, th a second superseding indictment, so it's a third set of charges. Christie says it's too big a risk, given Menendez's position of leadership and access to U.S. intelligence. I don't understand how Chuck Schumer can't go to Mitch McConnell right now and say, look, we need to have a vote to kick him out. Menendez is facing charges of conspiring to commit bribery, honest services fraud, extortion, and acting as a foreign agent. His trial is set for May 6th. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The U.S. has reportedly reached an agreement with Qatar to continue operating its military base, the largest in the Middle East, for another 10 years, though it hasn't been announced publicly. Three U.S. defense officials told CNN the U.S. signed a deal that will extend U.S. military presence in the region until 2034. The airbase, located near Doha, can house more than 10,000 troops. It's a hub for U.S. Central Command's air operations in Afghanistan, Iran, and across the Middle East. Qatari and British air forces also operate out of the base. Qatar has become a key mediator between the U.S. and its adversaries in the region, including Iran and the Taliban. Its recent role in negotiating the release of captives from Venezuela and Gaza is seen by some analysts as an extension of this role. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin visited the base last month where he thanked Qatar for its increased spending on the military installation. This extension would come as the U.S. bolsters its presence in the region amid escalating threats from Iran-backed terror groups in Iraq, Syria and Yemen. And here to discuss yesterday's drone strike on a senior Hamas official in Beirut and more is Middle East Affairs Analyst at the Center for Security Policy, David Wormser, who we spoke with earlier. David, to begin with, what kind of impact do you think Israel's uh, drone strike on a senior Hamas official in Beirut has on the war with Hamas? Well, it certainly has a demoralizing effect because, first of all, the Israelis clearly are serious about their threat to reach out and, and, and get any Hezbollah leader or, sorry, Hamas leader anywhere in the world. Uh, that's number one. Number two, the fact that they can do it. And number three, the fact that a very senior leader, really, and number two or three of Hamas has been killed, has to have a demoralizing effect to those left in Gaza fighting the Israelis. So I, I would say it has a major effect. The se second sort of basket of effects is it shows that Israel is becoming so confident that it is risking war in the north. This was in Beirut and Lebanon not in Gaza, which is far to the south. So if it's doing something that could risk war with the north, with Lebanon, uh, it shows that the Israelis now are really getting to the point where they're confident that they have the power, the military power ammunition to proceed. Okay, and looking now at the Red Sea, you know, Maersk has said again that it's stopping its shipments there, uh, uh, sending its ships there, and the U.S. military opened fire in that area because of all the strikes going on. Um, what does that indicate to you regarding security in the region? Well, I think it, it indicates a lot. I'm glad you asked that. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why Israel's hitting in Beirut against Hamas has hit some senior Hezbollah officials and the Houthis are part of all this, is that this all boils down to Iran. 
Iran is basically on the move in the region. If For those who are Tolkien fans, it's a, a sleepless malice stirs. And the Israelis are reacting, the United States, Britain, everybody else is reacting, and the Houthis are, are really proxies for the Iranians. So this is yet another front in a larger Israeli-Iranian or is Iranian-Western war. All right. And now... I want to look at Saudi Arabia. It's just said that it's uh, officially joining BRICS, which of course started with Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Uh, what does that signify to you about the dynamics in the region and the future potential for negotiations or the potential for peace in the region? Well, the Israelis have moved very close to the Saudis strategically, but it hasn't culminated in a peace treaty yet. And part of it is I think the Saudis are still very raw at the Biden administration for being so hostile to the to the Saudi regime when they took over two years ago, uh, when the United when the Biden administration took office two years ago. So they're still very raw, and they're not confident in U.S. power. We're, you know, we in Washington remember the end of the Cold War with the unipolar moment, but in the rest of the world, they're really wondering: Does America have it to be a great power, to be a, a power everywhere in the world? Power-wise, yes, but will is the question. So the Saudis are hedging, and I think the BRICS is a hedge, and they're going to hold off on peace on some level until they're pretty sure that the Israelis are going to win and that the Americans are, are, are behind them. All right. And so looking more intensely here at the U.S., taken together of all of these developments that we've spoken about, how do they shape the geopolitical landscape, would you say, uh, and what implications could that have on the U.S. and its allies? Well, I think we're in a fortunate circumstance here in the Middle East in that we do have some powerful friends. The Saudis, the UAE have a lot of money and resources. Israel is willing to fight and willing to fight alone without U.S. boots on the ground. So we have actually a structure in the region that upholds Western interests without too much investment by the United States at this point in terms of actual forces. The problem is that we're nervous about the forces we do have in the region. So we keep pulling our allies back, specifically the Israelis. The Israelis now are willing to be much more aggressive to stop the Houthis closing the Straits of Mandeb, the Red Sea, Yemen, much more aggressive against Iraqi militias, much more aggressive against Hezbollah. And it's really the United States on some level that doesn't want a regional war because it doesn't want to get bogged down. But it, it really, I think it, it begs a strategic reconsideration in Washington, leveraging our allies' power rather than trying to restrain them and replace their power. All right, David Wormser, thank you so much. Coming up, Japanese authorities are investigating the plane collision at Tokyo Haneda Airport. What they know about the accident so far. And it's been two days since the powerful earthquake in Japan. Rescuers racing against time to find those still trapped. We'll have the details soon when we return. A miraculous escape as everyone aboard a Japan Airlines plane that burst into flames yesterday after a collision survived. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on their stories and what helped them make it out. The Japan Airlines plane collided with a Coast Guard plane at Tokyo's Haneda Airport. Five of six crew members on the Coast Guard plane it struck during landing have died. But all 379 passengers and crew on board the Airbus A350 survived the accident. 
telecommunication company worker Satoshi Yamaki told the media he smelled smoke, but there was no panic among the passengers who left the plane in about five minutes. I was wondering what happened, and then I feel the airplane tilt to the side on the runway and I felt a big bump. The flight attendants told us to stay calm and instructed us to get off the plane. Yamaki says he wasn't afraid, that the plane had landed, and he didn't think it would explode. I could only see the fire in the engine. After we calmly got off the plane and went to a place far from the plane, I saw that the fire had spread in about 10 to 15 minutes. Tsubasa Sawada says he doesn't want to go on planes anymore. I heard an explosion about 10 minutes after we all got off the plane. We would have been in trouble if we had left even a little late. The 28-year-old says he's counting his lucky stars. I can only say it was a miracle. We could have died if we were late. Aruto Iwama says he saw sparks flying and burning during landing, and the cabin was soon full of smoke. There were screams, and the flight attendant was leading us with a loud voice. Even though I heard screams, most people were calm and did not stand up from their seats but kept sitting and waiting. That's why I think we were able to escape smoothly. Iwama says the experience taught him a lesson. When you ride a plane, they show you the video about emergency escape. Now I indeed think that we should watch those videos carefully and keep that information in our head. Experts say the successful evacuation is due to a combination of modern safety standards and Japan Airlines' own rigorous safety culture. A pilot for a major European airline who wished to remain anonymous says that modern aviation safety records are written in the blood of others who haven't been so fortunate. UK pilot and aviation expert Tim Atkinson said it appeared one of the doors of the passenger airplane had not opened, making the probability of getting everyone out less likely. Uh, it, it's it's enormously um, uh, heartening to see that everybody uh, reportedly at the moment uh, has got out of this aircraft uh, in one piece. Tuesday's accident was the first time one of the Airbus A350s was severely damaged. The large passenger plane entered commercial service in 2015. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. So what went wrong at the Tokyo Haneda Airport? Japanese authorities are beginning their investigations into yesterday's fiery collision. Japan's transport ministry today released transcripts of conversations with the control tower. They show that the Japan Airlines passenger jet was given permission to land, but the Coast Guard plane was not cleared for takeoff. The smaller plane was told to taxi to a holding point near the runway. The Coast Guard captain said he had entered the runway after receiving permission. That's in contradiction to the transcripts. Authorities are on the ground inspecting the charred wreckage of the airliner. They have also recovered the black box from the Coast Guard plane. Reports say Tokyo police are investigating whether possible professional negligence led to the collision. Haneda Airport canceled over 100 flights today. And staying in Japan, rescuers are racing against time to find survivors from the powerful New Year's Day earthquake. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida says he believes the rescue effort is at a critical moment. We have received reports that there are still many people waiting for rescue under collapsed buildings. Today, in addition to increasing the number of self-defense force personnel from 1,000 to 2,000 people, we will also strengthen our system by more than doubling the number of rescue dogs. The death toll has risen to at least 73. Dozens of people were seriously injured. This makes it Japan's deadliest earthquake since 2016. 
A magnitude 4.9 aftershock hit earlier today. Kushida said the aircraft collision at Tokyo's Haneda Airport did not impact aid delivery to the quake zones. The Prime Minister added that bad weather and further tremors are expected in the region. He asked local residents to be on the alert for landslides. They're still waiting for further aid while facing freezing temperatures and heavy rain. Yeah. More than 33,000 people have evacuated their homes. The government opened a sea route to deliver aid and some larger trucks can now reach more remote areas. And aftershocks continue to shake the region following Japan's 7.6 magnitude earthquake. Experts weigh in on the situation. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the latest. Powerful earthquakes rocked Japan's west coast on New Year's Day. Aerial footage captured in Ishikawa showed the widespread destruction. People huddled in auditoriums, schools, and community centers. Tectonics professor Richard Walker at the University of Oxford weighed in. Um, all of these things are quite um, a diagnostic of, of, of ground liquefaction. This is where you have quite water-saturated near-surface geological layers. And when the ground shaking occurs, they, they kind of lose cohesion. They, they, it almost turns into a liquid itself. Cleanup efforts are underway. According to Japanese media reports, tens of thousands of homes were destroyed. Water, power, and cell phone service are still down in some areas. The quick response appears to have kept some of the damage under control. Rescue efforts of firefighters, police, and the military showed how the country readies itself for natural disasters. In a comparison to, to earthquakes, the earthquakes that we saw in 2023, the ones in the news in places like Afghanistan, Morocco, where they were significantly smaller earthquakes and yet had very, very large death tolls. And I think that shows you how well the Japanese prepare for these kind of events. Earthquakes frequently hit Japan due to its location along the Ring of Fire, an arc of volcanoes and fault lines in the Pacific Basin. Aftershocks continued to shake Ishikawa and nearby areas. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And staying in Japan, four people were reportedly stabbed on a train at a station in Tokyo. The city had to temporarily pause one of its busiest rail lines. According to Japanese media, a woman was reported wielding a knife on the train. She's been arrested by the police for further investigation. Coming up, Taiwan, India, Mexico, and the European Union. They will all hold general elections this year. What are the implications of their results? And Russia reportedly bombed one of its own cities on accident. Find out the impact it had and what the Kremlin is saying more shortly here on NTD News Today. Besides the U.S. general elections in November 2024, there are also other important races happening around the globe. Here are some of the key elections in the world next year. Starting off the year on January 13th, Taiwan will hold its presidential election. Incumbent President Tsai Ing-wen is barred by term limits from seeking re-election. Her party's candidate for president, Lai Ching-de, is currently Tsai's vice president. He has pledged to continue bolstering Taiwan's defenses in the face of threats from communist China. The whole world wants to know whether the people of Taiwan will continue to move forward on the path of democracy in this major election, or whether they will choose to rely on China, follow a pro-China path, and lock Taiwan into China again. 
polls show Lai as the frontrunner, ahead of candidates from opposition parties Guomindang and the Taiwan People's Party. Next, from March 15th to 17th, Russia will hold its presidential election. President Vladimir Putin has been in power for 24 years, and on December 8th, he announced he will run for a fifth term. That would be another six years in office, till 2030. The last election in 2021 was dominated by widespread reports of fraud, with the vast majority of opposition figures either in jail or outside Russia, Putin is poised to win. I want to emphasize again that any attempt to sow inter-ethnic and inter-religious discord to split our society is a betrayal, a crime against the whole of Russia. We will not allow anyone to divide Russia, which is the only one we have. Putin's victory would guarantee the war in Ukraine will continue. The Kremlin has said the idea of peace talks on Ukraine's terms are unrealistic. For the first time, the election will take place over three days, and it will cover four regions of Ukraine recently annexed by Russia in the war. The world's most populous democracy, India, will hold general elections between April and May. Prime Minister Narendra Modi is seeking a third term in office. That's another five years. Surveys show Modi widely popular after a decade in power. Under him, India played a bigger role in global diplomacy and embraced global climate goals. Our target by 2030, emissions intensity has to be reduced by 45 percent. We have decided that we will increase the share of non-fossil fuels to 50 percent, and we will also keep moving towards the goal of 2070 and net zero. Modi's ruling party scored major victories in provincial elections in December, giving him a boost ahead of the national election. But he still faces a challenge from a 28-party opposition alliance. Next summer, on June 2nd, Mexico will hold its presidential election. Incumbent President Andres Manuel López Obrador is barred by term limits from running again. So Mexico will have a new president, and for the first time, it looks like it will be a woman. The president and his party are backing Claudia Scheinbaum. She's the former mayor of Mexico City. Polls show Scheinbaum having double the support of her opposition rival, Xochitl Galvez. The Mexican president serves one six-year term. Then, from June 6th to 9th, citizens in 27 EU member states will vote for members of the European Parliament. About 400 million eligible voters will choose their representatives. That's 720 seats in total. Members serve five-year terms. No party has held a majority, so the parliament depends on parties forming coalitions. Currently, there is a major coalition between the People's Party and the Socialists. Right-leaning politicians scored recent victories in Italy and the Netherlands. It's worth seeing whether the trend will continue in the 2024 EU election. Finally, on November 5th, the U.S. will have its presidential election. Incumbent President Joe Biden, a Democrat, is running for a second term. Meanwhile, former President Donald Trump, a Republican, is also running for his second term in office. The race is likely going to be a rematch between Biden and Trump, just like in 2020. The latest polls show Trump dominating the Republican primary. Switching gears, we are heading to Europe for some short headlines, starting with the ongoing battles. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia used almost 300 missiles and over 200 drones over the last three days. In his nightly address on Tuesday, Zelensky said no other country ever had to repel combined drone and missile attacks. 
The trajectory had been specially calculated by the enemy to cause as much damage as possible. This is absolutely conscious terror. Norway has approved direct sales of weapons to Ukraine. Norway's foreign minister says it's important to support Ukraine to guarantee Europe's security. Export licenses for direct sales will only be permitted on an individual basis. The policy change took effect on New Year's Day. Russia has reportedly bombed one of its own cities. The country's defense ministry said an Air Force plane was forced to make an emergency release of munitions on Tuesday. That's while it was flying over a Russian village. The town is less than 100 miles east of the border with Ukraine. Russia's defense ministry said an investigation is underway to find out what caused the issue. Russia says there were no casualties, but that six buildings were struck. The European Union today added the world's biggest diamond producer to its Russian sanctions list. Russia's Al Rosa, as well as its CEO, are now on the list. The box says this is part of the diamond ban, which was introduced with the 12th package of sanctions. The ban went into force on January 1st. It targets natural and synthetic diamonds exported from Russia. Russia's diamond exports reportedly totaled around $4 billion in 2022. Thousands of so-called junior doctors who are in the first years of their careers walked off the job in Britain today. It marks the start of a six-day strike over pay. This is set to be the longest strike in the history of the state-funded National Health Service. Managers say tens of thousands of scheduled appointments and operations will be canceled during the walkout. The doctors plan to stay off the job until 7 a.m. on Tuesday. Doctor, junior doctors argue they don't earn enough as they start their careers. And on this episode of Strong Mind and Body, we look at three tea drinks that rival coffee and can boost alertness. Here's Gina Marie. To invigorate your mind in the morning, you can replace coffee with a few tea options. This includes black tea, puro tea, and peppermint tea. Black tea and puro tea also have digestive benefits. However, there are some considerations when consuming peppermint tea. Black tea is fermented and it's gentle on the stomach. This makes it suitable to drink after breakfast. It contains tea polyphenols, dietary fiber, vitamin B6, and abundant antioxidants. Black tea can help to improve alertness, prevent colds, enhance antibacterial capabilities, reduce greasiness, aid digestion, stimulate appetite, strengthen heart function, and slimming and fat-reducing effects. Pua tea contains less caffeine than coffee and is fermented. This makes it gentle on the stomach and increases its antioxidant effects. These are known to fight oxidative stress and reduce inflammation. It is suitable for morning and evening consumption for people of all ages. Pura tea contains various amino acids, vitamins, catechins and minerals. These warm the stomach, reduce fat, lower blood pressure and provide overall health benefits. According to research, the special fermentation process of pua tea also produces natural enzymes. These can break down abdominal fat and reduce triglycerides and cholesterol in the blood. Peppermint tea is cooling and refreshing in nature and promotes sweating. In traditional Chinese medicine, it is mainly taken for conditions such as wind, heat, cold, lack of perspiration, headache, red eyes, fever, and sore throat. Drinking peppermint tea can boost alertness, but it should be avoided in individuals with wind-cold colds. It is also not recommended for those with weak qi, as it may induce excessive sweating. If you drink peppermint tea, use a small amount of peppermint. 
Avoid boiling it for too long and consider adding spices like cardamom or nutmeg. These aromatic and warming herbs can further invigorate the spleen and the mind. So there you have it, black tea, pura tea or peppermint tea. They're all great alternatives to coffee. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. House Republicans set to kick off impeachment proceedings against Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas. What does the timeline look like? Deadly explosions in Iran and a vow for vengeance from Hezbollah. We bring you the latest unrest unfolding in the Middle East. House Speaker Mike Johnson kicks off the new year by leading more than 60 House Republicans to the U.S.-Mexico border. That's amid the record-breaking migrant surge in recent months. We have the latest. The D.C. judge dismisses part of a lawsuit against former President Trump related to the death of Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick. But other accusations in the case will continue. A plane in Japan crashes, catches fire, and fills with smoke. Hear what happened next as those on board tried to make it to safety. Taiwan, India, Mexico, and the European Union all hold general elections this year. What are the implications of their results? This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. House Republicans are forging ahead with steps to impeach Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas. That's what multiple media report today. Mayorkas reacted to the news in an interview with CNN. He was asked whether an impeachment effort would complicate any efforts to pass a border deal. Oh, I certainly hope not. And I'm incredibly proud of coming to work every day and leaving the office uh, as late as it might be. When they're at the border, they're going to see the magnitude of the problem and why we have said now for about three decades that our uh, broken immigration system is in desperate need of legislative reform. So we are focused on solutions, and we hope that they will return to Washington and focus on the solutions as well. A spokesperson for the Homeland Security Committee says the impeachment hearings will begin next week. The House voted in November to bump the issue to the committee. Since retaking the House majority, Republicans have long sought to impeach Mayorkas over his handling of immigration at the southern border. Mayorkas sought to downplay concerns about an impeachment. Instead, he called for more funding for his department. And we turn now to the conflict in the Middle East. At least 100 people were killed at a memorial event in Iran earlier today. Meanwhile, tensions are escalating between Israel and Hezbollah. Iranian state media reported two explosions during a memorial event for General Qassem Soleimani. He was killed by a U.S. precision strike in January of 2020. The blast struck near Soleimani's grave, and at least 140 people were injured in addition to the 100 killed. No group has claimed responsibility so far. Fears are also rising that the Israel-Hamas war could spread across the region. The Hezbollah terrorist group in Lebanon is vowing revenge after a precision strike killed a senior Hamas leader in Lebanon yesterday. Israel has neither claimed nor denied responsibility. Israel's top spy chief is also promising to trace down all those involved in the October 7th Hamas attack. 
Shipping giant Maersk is extending a pause on operations in the Red Sea. Instead, they will continue to send some vessels around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. The decision comes after one of their container ships was attacked by four Houthi boats over the weekend. Other major shipping companies have also stopped using the route, which normally accounts for 10 to 15 percent of the world's shipping trade. The longer shipping companies don't use the Red Sea route, the higher the risk it will impact global inflation. Oil prices rose more than a dollar a barrel today after reports of a disruption to Libya's top oil field added to supply concerns emanating from tensions in the Red Sea. Just Sunday, another attack there, the U.S. defending a shipping container in the Red Sea from Iran-backed Houthi forces. Here to discuss this and other developments in the region is R.T. Trevino, Vice President of Operations at Pecos Country Operating, an oil and gas exploration and production company. RT, welcome. How do you think this all might affect oil companies' operations and what are the potential risks? Well, right now, I know uh, for all of us oil companies, we're definitely taking it day by day as far as um, all these global risks that are going on throughout uh, the world right now. And it's just a darn shame that everything's going on and our hearts go out to everybody that's just getting hurt from all these travesties. Uh, but we are definitely being as cautious as we can. We really feel that, you know, the oil and gas industry needs to uh, just be safe and continue to provide that energy that so many people in the world use on a daily basis. Yeah. So how will this affect consumers on a daily basis, would you say? Yes. Uh, great question. Uh, it's going to affect our pocketbooks, unfortunately. As you uh, reported, now we have tankers and cargo vessels that are now going a longer route just to avoid any conflict in the Red Sea. And they're going now down uh, there at the Cape there in South Africa. And what we will see is a higher price in our transportation costs and an increase in other costs as well, which will then add to the inflation. The good, bad part of that is we won't see those effects for about another four to six weeks. Those tankers still won't get to Amsterdam or New York or the Gulf of Mexico until probably another four weeks. And then at that time, we will start to see the effects. And what kinds of contingency plans does your company have in place to mitigate the risks that we're looking at here and the actual impacts? Well, you know, what we're doing is we, we're just continuing to produce as we can here in America. And right now here, you know, we do are producing the most we ever have, believe it or not, under this administration. Now, that being said, as we continue to produce, we are not, uh, as a nation, refilling our stockpiles in our strategic petroleum reserve or drilling new wells to replace what we're producing. Uh, but right now, as we continue to produce, we will do that and just keep an eye on what's going on overseas. And we've seen, of course, many of the major shipping companies are continuing to reroute or starting to reroute again uh, so they don't have to go through the Red Sea. What, does, what strategies does your company employ to deal with that kind of thing, those kinds of logistical challenges? Oh, that's a that's a 24-7 right there to make sure everybody is is where they need to be and you got to trust your team. You know, one thing I do want to point out that's very interesting about the Red Sea at this time is the Strait of Hamuth and all these other areas that are being used uh, that actually shortcut everybody going through the Red Sea are actually co uh, countries uh, known as the BRICS Alliance, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. All those countries are being able to travel through the Red Sea with no issues. 
all the all the companies that are going the longer route are all companies that are uh, founded and housed in Western countries uh, like the United States or Great Britain or France. So this is very interesting right now with what's going on and who is being able to uh, travel freely in the Red Sea and who's not able to travel freely in the Red Sea. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And you're, you mentioned China. It's you know n- noteworthy that that's a factor here, even in this region of the world. And the Chinese regime is actually expected to pour cash into competitive areas of China's economy uh, because of or in re- amid a sinking uh, manufacturing scene there. How does your company deal with the changes in oil demand um, in, in regards to major economies such as China's? Well, you know, with with the way China is doing things, obviously here in Texas, we're doing our best actually not to sell our oil to China. Um, that is what we're doing here because they are the uh, they are a economic adversary. There's no ands ifs or buts about that. And with them partnering up with Russia, they're now trading oil in the ruble, which is a Russian currency, and that does not help out America or more importantly, the American dollar, which is still the number one trading around the world. So it's very, very important for us, especially here in Texas and the United States, not to sell to China our oil as best we can, even though we do. But we're doing our best not to at this time. All right. Thank you so much, R.T. Trevino. Great to speak with you. Embattled Harvard President Claudine Gay announced yesterday she's stepping down. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on her resignation just six months into her tenure. The move comes after a tumultuous month following Gay's testimony to Congress about campus anti-Semitism. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. Gay soon came under pressure to resign from Harvard's Jewish community and others. The university was also hit financially, as some wealthy donors suspended or withdrew funding. Harvard alum and billionaire investor Bill Ackman wrote on X that he was personally aware of more than a billion dollars of terminated donations from a small group of Harvard's most generous Jewish and non-Jewish alumni. More than 70 lawmakers signed a letter demanding that Harvard remove Gay. The letter also called for the firing of the University of Pennsylvania's Liz McGill and MIT's President Sally Kornbluth, both who testified at the same congressional hearing and also declined to give a definitive yes or no answer to whether calling for the genocide of Jews would violate their school's codes of conduct regarding bullying and harassment. UPenn President Liz McGill resigned days after the hearing. Following Gay's resignation, Representative Elise Stefanik wrote on X, two down. Last month, Harvard's Alumni Association Executive Committee said it unanimously and unequivocally supported the president. But on another front, a House committee widened its probe into anti-Semitism at Harvard to include an investigation into plagiarism in Gay's academic writing. Gay faced widespread criticism after the plagiarism accusations emerged, including multiple instances of missing quotation marks and citations. Jacob Miller, Harvard student and Hillel president, said Gay stepping down is just the first step. For me, the most important issue has been the anti-Semitism we've been seeing on a nearly daily basis across the school. In her resignation letter, Gay said, quote, It has been distressing to have doubt cast on my commitments to confronting hate and to upholding scholarly rigor, 
and frightening to be subjected to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus. Harvard Corporation defended Gay and said they accepted her resignation with sorrow. The corporation, which is the university's governing body, said she showed remarkable resilience in the face of deeply personal and sustained attacks. Although Gay has stepped down as president, she will remain at Harvard, returning to a position on the school's faculty. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Former Harvard president Claudine Gay will likely remain a member of the faculty's, the university's faculty. In her letter resignation, Gay said she would continue to teach. The Harvard Crimson reports that Gay made almost $900,000 as dean of faculty arts and sciences in 2021. It's unclear what Gay's position will be following her resignation. Provost Alan Garner will serve as Harvard's interim president. And coming up, RFK Jr. faces an uphill battle as he seeks to get on the ballot for the 2024 election in all 50 states. We speak with a reporter following his campaign about the challenges ahead. And police have identified two people killed in the New Year's Day crash in Rochester, New York. What do we know about them? More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Thank you for staying with us. With border and spending talks resuming in Congress, President Biden told reporters last night that the federal government needs more money to address the southern border crisis. Biden's comments came ahead of House Speaker Mike Johnson's visit to the U.S.-Mexico border today. Speaker Johnson is joined by 60 other Republican lawmakers on a trip to Eagle Pass, Texas. They will meet with state and local officials to discuss their experience on the ground and what they see as failures of the Biden administration to enforce border policy. Speaker Johnson says America is experiencing the worst border crisis in the nation's history and stated it's impacting every community in the country. He's accusing President Biden and Senate Democrats of being asleep at the wheel. Johnson says House Republicans are demanding immediate solutions to the problem. Fox News reported that over 300,000 people attempted to cross the southern border in December alone. The House Speaker will hold a news conference on border security at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Illegal immigration continues impacting communities across the U.S. Texas Governor Greg Abbott shares how many immigrants he bussed to other cities so far and his strategy going forward. Abbott posted on X Tuesday that Texas has transported over 95,000 migrants to sanctuary cities. Most of those people were reportedly sent to New York City. Chicago and Washington, D.C. come in second and third place. Abbott continued saying sanctuary cities like New York and Chicago have seen only a fraction of what overwhelmed Texas border towns face daily. We will continue our transportation mission, he says, until Biden reverses course on his open border policies. Meanwhile, suburbs in Chicago are implementing policies to restrict buses dropping off immigrants unannounced. Bus operators will have to get their arrival approved or face thousands of dollars of fines. This comes just days after New York City implemented a similar law. However, bus operators quickly found a loophole by dropping immigrants off in New Jersey, which is a 15-minute train ride from the Big Apple. Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson spoke on the issue on Tuesday, calling for federal intervention. 
We have this international crisis that really requires federal intervention from Congress to act. And right now you have local economies like the city of Chicago or Trenton or New York or Denver or anywhere else where we're having to subsidize this international crisis. But unfortunately, you also have a governor who is committed um, to chaos and disorder. Uh, governor Abbott has sent well over 600 buses alone to the city of Chicago. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is warning that illegal immigrants will soon have to sleep on the street. That's as the city struggles to find space for housing. Adams says the city is being inundated with immigrants. He said 2,500 migrants arrive every week, although that number can top 4,000 in some weeks. The mayor insists that New York has no room left to house people. A federal judge has dismissed part of a lawsuit against former President Trump and two January 6 defendants. It's related to the death of Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick. Sicknick had two strokes and died a day after the Capitol was breached. Sicknick's ex-girlfriend, Sandra Garza, brought the lawsuit against Trump. The judge in the case found Garza lacked statutory standing to bring a wrongful death claim because she wasn't his spouse or domestic partner under D.C. law. Three of the five civil counts were dismissed. Garza can now proceed with a claim against Trump under D.C.'s Survival Act. It allows a representative of Sicknick's estate to take legal action on his behalf after his death. Another part of the lawsuit that's allowed to continue is an accusation that Trump and the two defendants engaged in a conspiracy to violate civil rights. The judge noted that the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals has already ruled that Trump doesn't have presidential immunity from January 6 lawsuits. More updates on the prosecution of January 6 protesters. The Justice Department is seeking a six-month sentence for Ray Epps. Epps will appear for sentencing next Tuesday, January 9th. He faces one misdemeanor charge of disorderly or disruptive conduct for his actions at the Capitol. He pleaded guilty in September of last year. Prosecutors said Epps should spend time in jail because he tried to inspire and gather a crowd to storm the Capitol. They also said that Epps, quote, has been the target of a false and widespread conspiracy theory that he was an undercover government agent on January 6th. The lightning speed of Epps' prosecution stands in contrast to many January 6th defendants who have spent nearly three years in jail awaiting trial. And the thin Republican majority in the House of Representatives is set to shrink even more later this month. This as Representative Bill Johnson from Ohio is resigning earlier than planned. His official resignation date is now January 21st. This means there will be fewer Republicans in the House, making it more challenging for them to pass laws without Democratic support. Currently, there are 219 Republicans, 213 Democrats, and three empty seats in the House. With Johnson leaving, the Republicans will only be able to lose two votes if everyone shows up for a vote. This could make it harder for them to pass important laws and fund the government. The situation might become even more complicated as there are upcoming elections and another expected resignation. Those developments could further impact the number of House Republicans. The race for the Senate seat vacated by retiring Senator Mitt Romney just got more crowded. Congressman John Curtis said Tuesday he's throwing his hat into the ring. Republican John Curtis has been representing part of Utah since 2017. He originally said last fall he wasn't going to run, but says he changed his mind after people asked him to reconsider. Brent Hatch, a trial lawyer and son of the late Senator Orrin Hatch, is also running. Others running for Romney's Senate seat are former Utah House Speaker Brad Wilson and several GOP mayors. 
RFK Jr. qualified for his first 2024 ballot. The independent candidate will now be on the ballot in Utah. He's pledged to get an on the ballot in all 50 states, something easier said than done without affiliation with a major political party. For a closer look at the former Democratic candidate's presidential run, I spoke with Epic Times reporter Jeff Lauterbach. Jeff Lauterbach, thank you so much for joining us again. What difficulties could RFK Jr. face along his path to getting on the ballot in all 50 states? Well, tomorrow he's going to be in uh, Utah. I'm going to be there covering that. And he's expected to announce that he's officially on the ballot. That has already been revealed. Uh, if you recall, maybe two weeks ago, three weeks ago, he had to file a lawsuit because the state of Utah had uh, made its ballot access deadline in January instead of March. So that was reversed, but he still beat the uh, deadline, that January deadline to submit signatures. And he's expecting to face uh, lawsuits, legal challenges in every state as he tries to get on the ballot in all 50 states and District of Columbia. And what's his strategy for dealing with those kind of, that kind of litigation? Well, he's an attorney and he's uh, consistently sued and won against government agencies and corporations. So uh, they, they have their strategy. Uh, they expect to get, he insists that he's going to be on the ballot in all 50 states and D.C. And they expect legal challenges in, in every state and, and D.C. And they have their strategy based on his background in law. He, he hasn't come out and uh, detailed it, but he believes he's going to be on the ballot. And Jeff, some of these states require a significant number of signatures for an independent candidate to get on the ballot or any candidate. Uh, what's RFK Jr.'s strategy for making that happen? Well, since he decided to be an independent instead of staying the Democrat primary, he has those challenges where each state has a different requirement for ballot access. So some states require 1,000, 2,000. Other states are more stringent, maybe 100,000, 250,000. So they're varying their strategy from state to state. They're doing staging the voter rallies. They're doing a lot of social media within each state. And he's supported by the American Values 2024 PAC. They're doing their thing, and the RFK Jr. campaign is doing its thing. But he believes he's going to be on all 50 states' ballots and the ballot of D.C. And what can we expect from an RFK Jr. independent run, given the dominance of the two major, major political parties in U.S. elections? Well, I'm about to finish a story on the history of independence. Uh, obviously, those who are old enough know the last uh, serious independent was Ross Perot, who garnered 19% of the popular vote. He did not uh, get any electoral votes, though. I think the last, uh, well, I'm sure the last independent who got electoral votes was George Wallace in 1968. RFK Jr., he believes that he's going to get electoral votes. He believes he'll get enough electoral votes to at least throw the election to the House, because if no one gets 270 electoral votes, the House decides and each state gets one vote. And because RFK Jr., he, he's generating support across the board with uh, conservatives, liberals, independents, moderates, he believes he has a chance to win that way.
All right, Epic Times reporter Jeff Lauterbach, thank you so much. Thank you. A former Iowa congressman is endorsing presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. This comes just a few days before the Iowa caucuses. Former Representative Steve King says Ramaswamy is the strongest voice for defending the U.S. Constitution. King made the announcement today. He served nine terms in Congress representing northwestern Iowa from 2003 to 2021. King also supports Ramaswamy's idea of constructing a wall along the U.S.-Canada border. That's to combat the illegal trafficking of fentanyl into the United States. Ramaswamy commented, saying he's proud to have King's endorsement. And the last GOP debate before the Iowa caucuses will only include two candidates. Former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. That's according to CNN, which will host the January 10th debate. Haley, DeSantis and former President Trump have all qualified, but Trump plans to hold a Fox News town hall meeting in Iowa at the same time, according to Fox. Entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie failed to meet CNN's debate qualifications. In a post on X, Ramaswamy predicted that the DeSantis-Haley debate would be, quote, the most boring in modern history, unquote, and said he would participate in a podcast hosted by journalist Tim Pool instead. Nikki Haley criticized Trump for failing to participate in another debate. She said it's time for Trump to show up with only three candidates qualifying. CBS reports that the RNC won't be involved in the January 10th debate or any debates afterwards, saying it's up to the candidates if they wish to participate. The debate is scheduled for January 10th at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. And Utah says more people moved to Texas than any other state in 2023. It's the third year in a row that the Lone, state, the Lone Star State topped U-Haul's growth index report. Each year, U-Haul calculates the number of one-way trips of its trucks to and from each state. Texas had a net gain of about 174,000 people in 2023. Number two on the list was Florida, followed by North Carolina, South Carolina, and Tennessee. At the bottom, California. The report provides a snapshot of do-it-yourself movers, but it doesn't account for other rental companies or when people hire a moving company. U-Haul says the report does not correlate directly to population or economic growth. Police have released the identities of two victims killed outside a theater in Rochester after midnight on New Year's Eve. 28-year-old Justina Hughes and 29-year-old Joshua Orr were riding in the back of a rideshare Mitsubishi Outlander. They are both from the surrounding area. The vehicle they were in was struck by a 35-year-old man who had filled the rented SUV with gas canisters. The resulting crash pushed both vehicles into a crowd outside a local theater that was hosting a concert. Nine pedestrians were injured and the rideshare driver suffered non-life-threatening injuries. The driver of the rented SUV died. Rochester police initially considered domestic terrorism as a possible motive, but have not found any evidence the driver acted on any political or social issues. And the East Coast is expecting this year's first nor'easter this weekend. A storm could bring significant snow to several cities along the East Coast and heavy rain to the south. The low pressure system is projected to take shape Friday off the Gulf Coast. At least 20 states from Texas to New England are expected to be affected. The storm could end record snowless streaks for cities like Baltimore, Philadelphia, and New York that haven't seen an inch of snow in almost two years. While it's still uncertain, the I-95 corridor could see at least an inch of snow. Residents in the southeast should prepare for potential flash floods. 
The storm is projected to begin dissipating Sunday afternoon. Travel across the eastern U.S. might get messy over the weekend. Coming up, it's been two days since the powerful earthquake in Japan. Rescuers racing against time to find those still trapped. In a miraculous evacuation for those on board the passenger jet that collided at Tokyo's Haneda Airport. What the survivors have to say about their experience, we have that and more when we return on NTD News. Welcome back. A miraculous escape as everyone aboard a Japan Airlines plane that burst into flames yesterday after a collision survived. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on their stories and what helped them make it out. The Japan Airlines plane collided with a Coast Guard plane at Tokyo's Haneda Airport. Five of six crew members on the Coast Guard plane it struck during landing have died. But all 379 passengers and crew on board the Airbus A350 survived the accident. Telecommunication company worker Satoshi Yamaki told the media he smelled smoke, but there was no panic among the passengers who left the plane in about five minutes. I was wondering what happened, and then I feel the airplane tilt to the side on the runway and I felt a big bump. The flight attendants told us to stay calm and instructed us to get off the plane. Yamaki says he wasn't afraid that the plane had landed and he didn't think it would explode. I could only see the fire in the engine. After we calmly got off the plane and went to a place far from the plane, I saw that the fire had spread in about 10 to 15 minutes. Tsubasa Sawada says he doesn't want to go on planes anymore. I heard an explosion about 10 minutes after we all got off the plane. We would have been in trouble if we had left even a little late. The 28-year-old says he's counting his lucky stars. I can only say it was a miracle. We could have died if we were late. Aruto Iwama says he saw sparks flying and burning during landing, and the cabin was soon full of smoke. There were screams, and the flight attendant was leading us with a loud voice. Even though I heard screams, most people were calm and did not stand up from their seats but kept sitting and waiting. That's why I think we were able to escape smoothly. Iwama says the experience taught him a lesson. When you ride a plane, they show you the video about emergency escape. Now I indeed think that we should watch those videos carefully and keep that information in our head. Experts say the successful evacuation is due to a combination of modern safety standards and Japan Airlines' own rigorous safety culture. A pilot for a major European airline who wished to remain anonymous says that modern aviation safety records are written in the blood of others who haven't been so fortunate. UK pilot and aviation expert Tim Atkinson said it appeared one of the doors of the passenger airplane had not opened, making the probability of getting everyone out less likely. Uh, it, it's, it's enormously um, uh, heartening to see that everybody uh, reportedly at the moment uh, has got out of this aircraft uh, in one piece. Tuesday's accident was the first time one of the Airbus A350s was severely damaged. The large passenger plane entered commercial service in 2015. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. So what went wrong at the Tokyo Haneda Airport? Japanese authorities are beginning their investigation into yesterday's fiery collision. Japan's transport ministry today released transcripts of conversations with the control tower. They show that the Japan Airlines passenger jet was given permission to land, but the Coast Guard plane was not cleared for takeoff. 
The smaller plane was told to taxi to a holding point near the runway. The Coast Guard captain said he had entered the runway after receiving permission. That's in contradiction to the transcripts. Authorities are on the ground inspecting the charred wreckage of the airliner. They have also recovered the black box from the Coast Guard plane. Reports say Tokyo police are investigating whether possible professional negligence led to the collision. Haneda Airport canceled over 100 flights today. And staying in Japan, rescuers are racing against time to find survivors from the powerful New Year's Day earthquake. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida says he believes the rescue effort is at a critical moment. We have received reports that there are still many people waiting for rescue under collapsed buildings. Today, in addition to increasing the number of self-defense force personnel from 1,000 to 2,000 people, we will also strengthen our system by more than doubling the number of rescue dogs. The death toll has risen to at least 73. Dozens of people were seriously injured. This makes it Japan's deadliest earthquake since 2016. A magnitude 4.9 aftershock hit earlier today. Kishida said the aircraft collision at Tokyo's Haneda Airport did not impact aid deliveries to the quake zones. The Prime Minister added that bad weather and further tremors are expected in the region. He asked local residents to be on the alert for landslides. They're still waiting for further aid while facing freezing temperatures and heavy yeah. rain. More than 33,000 people have evacuated their homes. The government opened a sea route to deliver aid, and some larger trucks can now reach more remote areas. Aftershocks continue to shake the region following Japan's 7.6 magnitude quake. Experts weigh in on the situation, and TD's Andrew Thomas has the latest. Powerful earthquakes rocked Japan's west coast on New Year's Day. Aerial footage captured in Ishikawa showed the widespread destruction. People huddled in auditoriums, schools, and community centers. Tectonics professor Richard Walker at the University of Oxford weighed in. Um, all of these things are quite um, uh, diagnostic of, of, of ground liquefaction. This is where you have quite water-saturated near-surface geological layers. And when the ground shaking occurs, they, they kind of lose cohesion. They, they, it almost turns into a liquid itself. Cleanup efforts are underway. According to Japanese media reports, tens of thousands of homes were destroyed. Water, power, and cell phone service are still down in some areas. The quick response appears to have kept some of the damage under control. Rescue efforts of firefighters, police, and the military showed how the country readies itself for natural disasters. In a comparison to, to earthquakes, the earthquakes that we saw in 2023, the ones in the news in places like Afghanistan, Morocco, where they were significantly smaller earthquakes and yet had very, very large death tolls. And I think that shows you how well the Japanese prepare for these kind of events. Earthquakes frequently hit Japan due to its location along the Ring of Fire, an arc of volcanoes and fault lines in the Pacific Basin. Aftershocks continue to shake Ishikawa and nearby areas. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And staying in Japan, four people were reportedly stabbed on a train at a station in Tokyo. The city had to temporarily pause one of its busiest rail lines. According to Japanese media, a woman was reported wielding a knife on the train. She's been arrested by the police for further investigation. Coming up, from the U.S. to Taiwan and the European Union, we have the key elections to watch this year. And a rescued orphan squirrel brings fun, happiness, and a book deal to a Florida family. Hear their story after this break.
Welcome back. Besides the U.S. general elections in November, there are also other important races happening around the globe. Here are some of the key elections in the world next year. Starting off the year on January 13th, Taiwan will hold its presidential election. Incumbent President Tsai Ing-wen is barred by term limits from seeking re-election. Her party's candidate for president, Lai Ching-de, is currently Tsai's vice president. He has pledged to continue bolstering Taiwan's defenses in the face of threats from communist China. The whole world wants to know whether the people of Taiwan will continue to move forward on the path of democracy in this major election, or whether they will choose to rely on China, follow a pro-China path, and lock Taiwan into China again. Polls show Lai as the frontrunner, ahead of candidates from opposition parties Guomindang and the Taiwan People's Party. Next, from March 15th to 17th, Russia will hold its presidential election. President Vladimir Putin has been in power for 24 years. And on December 8th, he announced he will run for a fifth term. That would be another six years in office, till 2030. The last election in 2021 was dominated by widespread reports of fraud. With the vast majority of opposition figures either in jail or outside Russia, Putin is poised to win. I want to emphasize again that any attempt to sow inter-ethnic and inter-religious discord to split our society is a betrayal, a crime against the whole of Russia. We will not allow anyone to divide Russia, which is the only one we have. Putin's victory would guarantee the war in Ukraine will continue. The Kremlin has said the idea of peace talks on Ukraine's terms are unrealistic. For the first time, the election will take place over three days, and it will cover four regions of Ukraine recently annexed by Russia in the war. The world's most populous democracy, India, will hold general elections between April and May. Prime Minister Narendra Modi is seeking a third term in office. That's another five years. Surveys show Modi widely popular after a decade in power. Under him, India played a bigger role in global diplomacy and embraced global climate goals. Our target by 2030, emissions intensity has to be reduced by 45 percent. We have decided that we will increase the share of non-fossil fuels to 50 percent, and we will also keep moving towards the goal of 2070 and net zero. Modi's ruling party scored major victories in provincial elections in December, giving him a boost ahead of the national election. But he still faces a challenge from a 28-party opposition alliance. Next summer, on June 2nd, Mexico will hold its presidential election. Incumbent President Andres Manuel López Obrador is barred by term limits from running again. So Mexico will have a new president, and for the first time, it looks like it will be a woman. The president and his party are backing Claudia Scheinbaum. She's the former mayor of Mexico City. Polls show Scheinbaum having double the support of her opposition rival, Xochitl Galvez. The Mexican president serves one six-year term. Then, from June 6th to 9th, citizens in 27 EU member states will vote for members of the European Parliament. About 400 million eligible voters will choose their representatives. That's 720 seats in total. Members serve five-year terms. No party has held a majority, so the parliament depends on parties forming coalitions. Currently, there is a major coalition between the People's Party and the Socialists. Right-leaning politicians scored recent victories in Italy and the Netherlands. It's worth seeing whether the trend will continue in the 2024 EU election. Finally, on November 5th, 
the U.S. will have its presidential election. Incumbent President Joe Biden, a Democrat, is running for a second term. Meanwhile, former President Donald Trump, a Republican, is also running for his second term in office. The race is likely going to be a rematch between Biden and Trump, just like in 2020. The latest polls show Trump dominating the Republican primary. Passengers on a United Airlines flight were hoping to travel back in time for New Year's, but ended up in the wrong year. In order to pa for passengers to technically time travel, flight UA200 was scheduled to leave Guam on January 1st at 7.35 a.m. and land in Honolulu, Hawaii on December 31st at 6.50 p.m. But the flight was delayed leaving Guam and landed in Honolulu at 12.34 a.m. on January 1st, causing passengers to miss the countdown. So to ease the frustration, the United Airlines offered passengers rebooking assistance. Each year, a few airlines offer passengers to the opportunity to redo their New Year's celebrations. A pet squirrel is an unusual choice. And a family in Florida says caring for their orphan squirrel comes with as many benefits as challenges. Here's their story. Family in Florida acted as a good Samaritan when they found an abandoned baby squirrel. They named him Mr. Peaches. They went outside and they found a baby squirrel abandoned on our deck. And they brought him in and I was out and I came home and my daughter was holding this little, I thought it was a rat at first, and it was Mr. Peaches. Little did they know the positive effect he would have on their family and the lessons they have learned from him. I don't know, it taught me about nature and I sit and I play with this little squirrel and I just, you know, I understand it's a wild animal, but the fact that he bonded with us and crawls on us and completely trusts us, it's, it's an amazing thing. So he, he's definitely taught me to slow down, quiet down and look around and feel nature. Videos of Mr. Peaches went viral and racked up millions of social media views. Fans of her videos encouraged her to write a book. We used actual pictures. That's, that's my dog, but we, we cartoon them. So, that, so it's the real background to my house, but, the, but the, the squirrel and the dog are animated. And everything rhymes. It was Jake who found me and brought me home. Never more do I want to roam. Life is peachy. It's very cute. Mr. Peaches entered their lives during a difficult time when the family had just lost someone close to them. The support they provide for each other has been beneficial for everyone involved. Fans of their social media videos also get happiness from watching the antics of Mr. Peaches. And that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more stories tomorrow.